Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Talk Talks. I'm Anthony Burton, here to present a conversation between author David Layton and community activist Laurel Harris on David's book, The Dictator. It was recorded live Sunday, May 7th, 2017, at the Prairie Theater Exchange in Winnipeg. Award-winning writer David Layton has had short fiction and articles published in literary journals, newspapers, and magazines, including Exile, The Daily Telegraph, Condé Nast Traveler, and The Globe and Mail. He's the author of Motion Sickness, a memoir that was shortlisted for the Trillium Book Award, and the best-selling novel The Bird Factory. David teaches creative writing at the University of Toronto and is the course director for Backstage IFOA, part of the Toronto International Festival of Authors program. Laurel Harris is a partner at Levine Tadman Golub Law Corporation, where she practices primarily in the area of family law. In addition to her undergraduate and law degrees, she's undertaken graduate studies in women's studies and black studies at The Ohio State University. Laurel currently serves as the chair of the board of directors for Women's Health Clinic. She's a member of the board of directors for the Jewish Federation of Winnipeg and is an honorary board member for the Canadian Magan David Adam Manitoba. Without further ado, here's David Layton in conversation with Laurel Harris. I'll start with a sort of legal phrase, which is, uh, while entirely a work of fiction, this book is based on true historical events. Uh, so I'd like to just spend a few minutes talking about what those historical events are. And as I said, then I'll just write, read a couple quick passages to sort of bring that out a bit more as it plays out in the book and the novel. So the story is, as I just said on the book cover, it's uh, so on the book cover, it's time in the Dominican Republic. Uh, it's a time when it was uh, run by a man called Rafael Trujillo. That, I don't know if that rings a bell for anybody here, but uh, he was the dictator of the Dominican Republic for, for many decades. He was assassinated in 1961 by uh, local Dominicans, but it was backed by the CIA, though he was an American ally, very strong and staunch ally. Uh, well, to give you a flavor of this man, I'll give you just two little quick facts. One is, at the time of his assassination in 1961, uh, he was about the fifth or sixth wealthiest man on the planet. And that gives you an idea of someone who's running a very small tropical country. The second, just to give you a flavor of the man and his sense of humor, uh, he, when the president of Venezuela opened up his birthday gift from Trujillo, he blew off his hands because the gift was a bomb. And when Trujillo discovered that he had blown his hands off, he, he clapped in joy and mirth. So that's an idea of just a flavor. There's many more things to say about Trujillo, but for the purposes of this novel, the important two facts are in 1937, for reasons that, for all the research I've done, there's still no clear account of how this happened, uh, why it happened, but there was a massacre. And it wasn't of Dominican citizens, but of Haitian citizens, because the second, the missing component here, of there's the island of the, of the country of the Dominican Republic, it actually shares the island, it's the island of Hispaniola, and it shares it with Haiti. Then as now, Haitians cross over the border for opportunities in the Dominican Republic. Um, then as now, there's a lot of tension around that. Just to give you a kind of moment, a contemporary example, it's been uh, reported in the New York Times and many other places, it's become quite a, a problem just in the last year that uh, many, many citizens, Dominican citizens, uh, who were born in the Dominican Republic, sometimes second generation, but came originally from Haiti, have been stripped of their citizenship. 
so these tensions are still there. Haiti is the first uh, successful black revolt, or, or I should say slave uh, colony that revolted against its overlooking the, 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 the French. They are darker, by general darker skinned, um, they're black. And Dominicans to this day, when they do racial census, uh, by and large, Dominicans will always put a, tick the box that says European. So in 1937, for reasons, there's no, there was no order, there's no paper, there's nothing that quite signifies what actually happened. But there was a pushback, this does happen at times, to, to just push Haitians back across the border. For reasons, as I keep saying, that no one quite understands, it turned into a kind of Rwandan massacre. For about 48 hours, at least 10,000, probably 15, top end is about 25,000 uh, Haitians were, were massacred. Uh, there are a lot of reports of, of, of Haitians who uh, were working in people's homes for many, many, many years, and they were just taken out in the front street and just, just slaughtered, uh, butchered. This happened, and about six months later, took time for the news to kind of come out, the New York Times reported this. And it became a problem for the United States. Two allies, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, the war was approaching. Um, they needed to get this solved. This brings us to 1938, the next big thing for Trujillo did. He realized he was in the doghouse, and he decided that there were another group of people. He discovered that there were another group of people even more uh, threatened, uh, and they were the Jews of Europe. Turns out that though the United States was very angry at the Dominican Republic, and, and there was a lot of discussion about this massacre that was really coming out and percolating, no one wanted to do anything about the Jews of Europe, including the United States. And a famous account uh, in Canada, the novel, the book, I should say, None is Too Many, that was, what was that, the foreign minister, I think, of Canada, mm -hmm. in regards to the Jews coming into to Canada. There was a huge conference in 38 in Evian, France, and in that conference, no one else knew, it, would not, it was not on the agenda. A representative of the Dominican Republic got on stage and said, we, the Dominican Republic, and Rafael Trujillo will take 100,000 Jews into our country. And everyone stood up and applauded, and this was fantastic. In the end, 650 Jews arrived. Uh, the war broke out in 39, there were other reasons. Uh, 650 arrived, two-thirds of them were men, young, all under 30, mostly. Uh, coming from Vienna, Berlin, urban centers, and they were put into a strip of a patch of land in the middle of nowhere. And that just from a novelistic point of view, from a story point of view, I just wanted to write that story about how, how would, in, in this utterly alien landscape, do you come from, you know, stripped from your own families? Uh, they weren't family groups, they were just usually just single young men and women who for one reason or other had managed to get out of Germany and primarily Austria and uh, survived. And so this is a really a story in one part about that survival. So it's also a novel, so this is a story about principally a man called, fictional now, Carl Kaufman. And I'm just gonna read now, just to sort of maybe bring out that point, this is the moment where Carl Kaufman is a young, uh, young, young, he's a teenager, and he's on a boat living Lisbon, this is based on historical fact. Uh, the boats, would, they would arrive into Lisbon, transport it out, and this is uh, the account of uh, sort of figuring out what's happening, because no one quite knew where they were going. It was all sort of organizations that were just plucking individuals and putting them on a boat. He had no idea. Most of the refugees that I interviewed had just no idea where they were going, where the Dominican Republic, what it, where it was and what it was. Yeah. So. 
a group of refugees had already assembled along a rectangular table whose best seat was reserved for Mr. Weinberg. On the table was a large and detailed atlas. This is the Dominican Republic. Mr. Weinberg motioned Carl to come closer so that he might better observe the green clump of land on the map that lay open before them. It's a very large island. Notice that there's another country on the island called Haiti. Mr. Weinberg traced the rickety boundary line, which looked as if it had been drawn by the unsteady hand of a child, his fingers moving north to south then turning eastward along the Caribbean coast towards the capital. This is Ciudad Trujillo, Mr. Weinberg said, the city of Trujillo. One of the men in the group expressed surprise that the president shared the same name as the city. Was it a popular name? The president renamed the city after himself, answered Mr. Weinberg. This impressed the refugees sitting around the table, including Karl. Mussolini hadn't renamed Rome after himself. Even Hitler wouldn't dare change the name of Berlin or Vienna. What sort of man names the capital after himself? Someone at the table asked. A dictator, answered another. What does he want with us? The refugees were more than curious. They were becoming suspicious. Who was this man with the power to save their lives? And why should, they, why should he do that? Weren't they all Jews? Nobody liked Jews. This was something Carl didn't need to think about. It was something he just knew. They could be poor and dirty or rich and clean. It didn't matter. It was an insight his father never possessed for all of the obvious hatred that ended up surrounding him. Bernard Kaufman thought of, a Jew, thought of Jew hatred as some sort of administrative mistake, as if presenting the correct information to the acting authorities could rectify everything. He wants our labor, answered Mr. Weinberg. Why? Doesn't he have enough of it in his own country? He wants us, reiterated Mr. Weinberg. What about those people? A man pointed to Haiti on the other side of the shaky borderline. I've been reading about all this. It's a poor but proud country. Mr. Weinberg turned to Carl as if they were all attending a Passover dinner. It was the youngest at the table who most needed to learn the important questions of the day. All the islands you see here in the Caribbean Sea, they were like prisons. Each and every one held slaves, millions of them, all working for men as cruel and uncaring as any pharaoh of Egypt. The slaves came from Africa, and some tried to become free. Only in Haiti did they succeed. They killed their French overlords and proclaimed themselves the first black republic in history. Carl and the rest of them all stared at this strange land populated by free slaves, its blue and red flag embossed with an insignia of two cannons, a fan of spears, and a lone palm tree. So they're black? Asked someone at the table. Yes, said Mr. Weinberg. Then what about the Dominicans? They're Spanish. So they're not black. They're brown, I think. Mr. Weinberg shifted his finger back up the north coast as if to move the conversation forward. This is Porta Plata, which in Spanish means port of silver. It was from here the Spaniards transported their gold and silver and precious stones. It was here that Christopher Columbus first discovered the new world. It was here that European civilization first took hold. And it is here, Mr. Weinberg stabbed at an empty, nameless patch of land just east of the silver port where we'll be settling. Farming in the tropics had seemed an impossibility while surrounded by snow-capped mountains of Switzerland, but it seemed even more so now that they were streaming across the Atlantic on their way towards the tip of Mr. Weinberg's finger. Everyone had questions to ask. What could they grow on that land? Were there houses for them to live in, or would they need to build their own? Who was already there? And what about diseases? It was the tropics. Everyone knew people died in the tropics. So blacks on one side, Spaniards on the other, and once again, 
were in the middle. The man who said this offered a cautious laugh, uh, which was picked up by all except Mr. Weinberg, who most likely thought it was God who was in the middle of all things. In Carl's experience, it was men, not God, who had the power to destroy lives or save them. They were sailing towards one such man whose power was so far-reaching he could rename the capital city after himself. Knowing this made Carl feel exposed and wary, as if he were merely cheating authority, not defeating it. For all that he'd heard around the table, he still had no idea what had motivated this man or, this, or his country to take in Jews, but he was suspected the answer might not be pleasant. After the meeting ended, a Spaniard who had overheard the conversation leaned next to Carl at the railing. The Dominican Republic, eh? The man let out a morose whistle. You'll die there for sure. Uh, that line actually, again, there's parts in there which was actually a line uh, one of the refugees said he actually encountered and that Spaniard did say those very words to a very young refugee. Uh, the last component of this is that, that for Trujillo, it was really a two for one. By admitting the Jews in, he got out of the problem with the Haitian massacre. But for Trujillo, a man who put whitening powder to, to make himself look more white, he didn't think of them as Jews. He thought of them as Germans, Austrians, white. Trujillo thought all the problems or the problems of his country uh, were really about the pollution of Negroid blood coursing through the Dominicans. Dominicans. He thought of them as, uh, he thought of his own subjects as citizens as, as fun-loving, guitar-strumming, rum-drinking, pleasure-seeking, and he thought all of those things were because of the Negroid blood that had infected his population. So he wanted these people to come, and this is not some kind of analysis where I, I have to make some kind of conjecture. This was right in the newspaper, the Jews arriving, proudly announcing that these were white colonists come to interbreed with the Dominicans to whiten their blood. So it's this story of a racial wonderland or a racial inversion where the Jews are vermin in one place and get converted to superior white in the next. Uh, so I think I'll just leave it at that um, and then turn it over uh, uh, to Laurel. Thank yeah. you. So it was an honor to be asked to do this, um, particularly because I have been to the, the place in the Dominican Republic, Sosua, which is the locale in the book in the Dominican Republic where these 650 Jews arrived and settled and made a life for themselves for a little while. Um, so I was familiar with this story, it was, so it was a neat intersection for me. It's clear to me that your book draws, David, um, parallels between the Holocaust and Trujillo's regime and this little slice of history is rich soil for talking about the presence and the absence and the acceptance and the avoidance of risks. Um, and the first thing I wanted to touch on was talking about what we're, do what we're dealing with in the world today. How did the current refugee crisis in terms of Syrians and the mass migration of Syrian refugees into Europe in particular, as they now are coming into Canada, and the concomitant rise in populism, how did that affect your writing this book? Uh, thank you for the question. And it's, uh, the, the funny part was, I wouldn't say it's exactly funny, but uh, for the last several years as I was sort of writing the book and then editing the book, um, I, uh, for no other reason than just chance, uh, found myself, or have found myself in the last two and a half years in the sort of geographical periphery of Europe. I've been in the UK, London, but also in Greece. 
and watching two really huge events happen. One was the refugee crisis that was coming, that happened in Greece. And, and that did have, I think, a, a substantial effect on the vote in Brexit vote in the UK. And the reason that is just, I said, Hamza is I'm dating someone. Uh, my partner is, um, is Greek. She was born in a, and lived in a Greek village until her early 20s and has spent the rest of her time in London. So I've been spending this time in Greece and in London. And while I'm writing this book, not only is she in Greece, but she's uh, from the island of Lesbos. That may ring a bell for some of you, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, and specifically the village of Molivos, I, I, it's a, a silly question, but I'm presuming that everyone sort of, or some of you are aware of what's happening with the Syrian refugees and crossing over, and that Greece was really the, the, the epicenter. But Lesbos was the heart of the refugees. 650,000 of them came through Lesbos. You can see Turkey, it's just basically like right on the other side there. You can. You feel like you could swim, you can't quite, but it's that close. And on a clear day, you can see cars, you know, it's the shiny metal of cars. It's the sun sparks off them moving along a road. They all came over and they, at the height of it, they came in at 5,000 just in this village a day. So I'm sitting here working on this book about refugees at a period of time in 1937, through the war, and there's suddenly this just out of seemingly the blue, no one was prepared for it, no one was organized for it. And vast numbers of Syrians that were, that were coming in. And it was a very, very odd experience and it ripped the village apart. apart right. And it has kept, and it'd be you know, naive and wonderful to imagine that everyone participated and everyone was, but it didn't. And you can imagine what that felt like I mean, just to give you an idea, sitting at my mother-in-law's house, which is just on the outside of the village, the main road, what, 5,000 people a day, 70% of whom are men, young men, streaming along a road in clumps of 10, 20, 50, 100, hour, well, from the moment you would wake up Until to the, the moment, moment you went to, to bed, yeah. and then the next group of 5,000 would come in. Uh, day after day, week after week. Uh, and so watching that happen, and that juxtaposition, right, because it's a tourist island. I mean, like Greece is a place, it was the height of summer. So you have Danish women, Scandinavians, breastless women on the, on the beach, everyone's suntanning, everyone's sitting at the tavernas. And just behind you are just the streams of refugees. Uh, and what was odd about it was how not really odd it was. It didn't stop anyone eating at the tavernas. There was just two utterly parallel moments happening. Life just went on. Life just went on. For the tourists, the yeah. European tourists coming for their two-week vacation, they were doing their thing. For the refugees, they're doing their thing, which is getting, you know, getting to Europe and getting to safety. So how did this impact your writing? Um, it it didn't impact my writing so much as just made what I was doing seem extremely uh, and oddly relevant to me. And the one aspect that did make it in the writing, which was the tension around the Greek village, um, and the tension that Carl, the main character, experiences, which you're starting to feel in Europe itself, right? Which is this: just what does refu what do these what do outsiders who's in who's out? 
And that's really informing, I think, the novel. And so I just strengthened those. Actually, in the most direct way, I should say, the opening chapter takes place in London. And that was written eight months ago. So the, the actual, the last thing I wrote uh, was set in London. And it has inf sort of informed around Brexit. Perfect. So that's, like my, that's the answer. So, <laughs> so reading the book, for me, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed in the book, and there are three main characters and two protagonists, I would suggest, or two pro main protagonists. So there's Carl, who is the, the man who has escaped the Holocaust and gone to the Dominican Republic. And then thereafter, there's his son, Aaron, who lives in Toronto, and his teenage daughter, Petra. And one of the pieces of the book, or one of the, the themes that came out in the book that I found really interesting was that there was an intergenerational thread um, in terms of the experiences that Carl had leaving Europe, arriving in this utterly foreign place, which was the Dominican Republic, and then having a family in the Dominican Republic, and then leaving again, uh, leaving that family behind, moving to Toronto and starting over and having a second family. And that is, that, that's Aaron, the, the one child, who he then again abandons. And later in life, Aaron now finds himself stuck taking care of Carl. And that's the spark that I think makes the book move. Um, but when we talk, when you talk about the whitening of the people in the Dominican Republic, the intersection of race and ethnicity, and it almost felt like there was a sliding scale um, of, be, of privilege and safety from being a non-ethnic white person sliding over and becoming a Jew, and then onward to the people of the Dominican Republic who referred to themselves as Spaniards, what basically look like me, and then the Haitians who are described as black, um, but really is a, it's a continuum of blackness um, that's quite startling. And if you've ever visited the Dominican Republic, you would be instantaneously able to see who the Haitians are versus who the people who refer to themselves as Dominicans um, are. But, and through all this, Carl has, Carl develops a growing awareness of his, of the relationship between his Jewishness, which is, not desirable at that time in, in that place, and his whiteness, which is absolutely desirable to Trujillo. Um, let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, well, in this, first of all, most of the, uh, in fact, well, I say, I'll just say most, because that's the safe way of doing it. Uh, the people who came were quote unquote secular. Uh, they were not, by and large, or a few people or who, had, who, who saw this as a kind of religious impulse to come to uh, the Dominican Republic, and it's somehow God's hand. But most weren't, they knew they were Jewish, but they were Austrian and German. And part of also running through that book, the book is, I'm just, is just who gets the right to, Carl is a very resentful, one of the things I wanted to do in, with Carl Kaufman is just because you go through experience like this, you go through all Holocaust, you don't have to, you're not, doesn't make you a better person. Carl's a son of a bitch. He's an unpleasant man, and I always wanted to be an unpleasant man. And he's angry. And he's an angry yeah, man. Yeah, he's very angry. Uh, and part of his anger is who gets to say um, that I'm Jewish? I'm Austrian. 
when did I get converted into this? And so there's a resistance by Carl and others and the colonists who are not willing or are quite angry about this idea that they are getting, that one sort of birthright is being taken away and some of the colonists are, are sort of adopting their sort of Jewishness. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a hostility. So there's a, there's a kind of who gets to say, you know, when you're, and then from on the other hand is, if you're living under the uh, hand of a dictator, where one, where the country and the dictator become so synonymous, then how do you break free? Are you a Dominican or are you just a subject of Trujillo? And who gets to define who a Dominican is? Um, or are you, are you subject or are you citizen? So all these things are, in some way, I was just thinking about and trying to play out through the book. One of the interesting things is in this kind of racial gradations is Trujillo didn't know, really under, didn't know what the Jews were, but he was a little wary, mainly because they were white, so he wouldn't allow them to settle in, Cent, in Cent, what is now Santo Domingo, but was, he called it Ciudad Trujillo, the city of Trujillo, but is today Santo Domingo, was before his time, his return to. Um, but he wouldn't let them go because he felt that they would take over uh, people working in the Dominican, and they would outsmart them. So he put them as a kind of agricultural group. In Sasua, which was a failed banana plantation. Which is a failed banana plantation. Um, But then also thought that they Kind of in the middle of nowhere. Kind of, (laughs) utterly in the middle of nowhere. And a great little piece of irony of history is there was, he he gave them it because it was a beachhead. The road would often be flooded in. So there's a beachhead, which is now the prime piece of real estate for Sasua because it's You've been there. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's a resort town. It's, it's a, a resort beautiful, town. lovely stretch with a bay, and it's a beautiful stretch yeah. with a bay. So, uh, and then as now, there's a was a development. So this brings in the aspects. There's Sasuo today, which is what they call kind of European, and then on the other side of the bay is the Dominican side. Right. Uh, and it really still has a, a, a feel, a different bit of a feel to it, even today, where you go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, where quote unquote locals live, and then sort of the tourists. Now it's turned into the tourists are living one side and the other. So even now there's sort of, not tensions, but there's differences that are playing through. Right, absolutely. What struck me was that Carl, as you said, the the people that were coming through were not necessarily the the, the poorest of Jews. These were cultured European Jews who saw themselves first and foremost as citizens of whichever country they were living in and not as Jews who were first demonized and then lifted up and suddenly become in this great twist of irony the agents of this dictator Trujillo in committing a different kind of atrocity. And how, how, it, how was Carl in his mind, in your mind's eye, when you were developing this character, how, how did Carl deal with that? How did he wrestle with the fact that he had become an agent of a dictator? Um, well, one line that- one experience I had is just was always running through, uh, which was actually uh, one of the uh, colonists. His name was uh, Ed Koch. He's died now. <clears throat> and I interviewed him at his home. He married, uh, as I said, two-thirds were Dominican men, uh, were, were Jewish rep, were male. So they ended up marrying Dominican women. And this was a man who had married a Dominican woman, a very lovely lady, uh, who uh, sat there and served us coffee and then went back into the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked Mr. Koch of, of Koch's Cabanas, 
because he now, as I said, it was a beachfront. So mm -hmm. he ended up arriving, imagine this kind of world I've described, and now he runs Cotches Cabanas, or did at the time, uh, and most proudly told me, it really was proud that Lufthansa airline pilots stay there. <laughs> uh, and he really loved the idea because it was clean and orderly. Um, uh, and I, I, later, just towards the end, I said, let me ask you this, what do you think of Trujillo? And he looked at me and he said, look, I know who he was and I know what he did, but he saved my life, period. 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 And that really was running through. There is a equation, and it's an uncomfortable one, and it's not an exact one, and in many ways it's even a silly one, but it's also there. The murder of 10,000, 15,000 Haitians resulted in the survival of, of Mr. Ed Koch, right. just to bring it down to that level. One would not have happened with the other. And how you make peace with that, or if you need to make peace with it, or think about it or not, uh, that's running through the book, and that's sort of what Carl Kaufman knows and yet doesn't want to even spend time thinking about. He, doesn't, he just doesn't want to go there at all, like, like Ed, but knows it's there. But and becomes aware through the book that it's there, like develops, develops a growing awareness throughout as the book moves forward. Yes. Of that as, as in truth, the colonists who, as I said, had no idea where they were going or why they were there or what was going on, and as time progressed, began to sort of understand and become part and become Dominican. So Carl Kaufman, this character, has a son named Abraham, who is left behind in the Dominican Republic when he when the war ends and he chooses to leave. In fact, he's born three weeks after in the book. I think is three three or so, weeks or so after the war ends is when. Yes. Carl's baby, Abraham, is born. And he's taken to the synagogue, and, he's, and he is circumcised. And Carl leaves. Carl decides he's going to go to Canada and make a life. And the reasons why Carl has ex decided explicitly to move to Canada are a bit unclear. Uh, and I, we, in our earlier discussion, we talked about the fact that I was quite sure you left that unclear deliberately. And there's a story to be told in between those lines. but. What also became very uh, clear was that there was this thread of trauma and the effect of the trauma on Carl and on Carl's children, first Aaron, and then secondarily, and, and less importantly, Abraham, and then thirdly, Petra. And the, a phrase, or a paragraph in the book that really struck me was when Aaron, Carl's son, wants to write down on a form what he is, and his father says, you're not Jewish, and he says, well, what am I? And he says, you're nothing. And nothing is actually, I, I, I think, if I'm interpreting, is, is actually safety. Nothing means you are not someone who will be targeted for your blackness or for your Jewishness. Nothing is the most desirable gift I can give you. Would you agree with that, and can you expand on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, the tagline I was always giving, you know, the uh, we'll never forget is a kind of tagline for, for Jews in, in relation to the Holocaust. We, we will never forget what happened. And Carl's line is, I will never remember. I don't want to know. I, 
as a man who has, by, by accident of history, being forced to do things and be something that he's not a hero, he's not, he didn't ask for any of this. Uh, and so he, at the end of the war, um, leaves behind his Dominican family. We, we were talking about that a little earlier. Um, if it's 1949, 48, uh, many of the refugees uh, throughout the 50s and 60s, though there's still a vibrant community there of offspring, uh, primarily went to the United States. In this case, Carl Kaufman goes to Canada, but effectively the same thing. And you could imagine that at the end of the war, out of guilt, uh, the whole policies change of immigration for, for, for Jews, but you weren't going to take a mixed race family with you to Canada in 1949. Um, so he leaves behind the family to kind of come up here. And while he sends money to this family of Dominican for the rest of his life, there's no contact. And he keeps this as a secret from his Canadian family. Carl's idea is Canada is a place of beautiful nothingness. It has no history, which is nonsense. But in Carl's sense, it has no history. It's a blank slate. It's a blank slate. And he wants to give his son that blankness. That's his, from his point of view. There's no history told. There are no photographs. There's no backstory. There's no stories about grandmother or anybody. There's just this nothingness, which is for Carl liberating and for the son, absolutely in many ways, uh, terribly destructive. Um, and so that part of that struggle in the novel is to try to to figure out what, he, what, from Aaron's point of view, this is all about in relation to his father. Uh, nothingness is a wonderful proposition unless you're the son of a father. Uh, and then it's not so great. Yeah, truly not so great. Petra. Petra is a petulant teenage daughter. She dislikes her father and thinks he knows nothing and understands nothing. <laughs> Um, and Petra is, Petra is interesting because she serves as a catalyst in terms of her character. She's a catalyst. And, what, and how Carl's story begins to be teased out, and, and by the way, Carl is suffering from dementia, which is how he ends up living with his son, who he hasn't lived with in many, many years. And Carl's story starts to be teased out by his relationship with his relationship with Petra. And Petra says, did you know that Grandpa did X, Y, and Z? And he says, nope, had no idea. How could you not know this, Dad? And Petra is, I think, places the responsibility for Aaron's not knowing his own history onto Aaron, because that's what teenagers do, because their parents know nothing. Um, but in, and in fact, Aaron becomes awakened, I think, from the, these snippets of history that Petra draws out. And the book ends with everyone back in the Dominican Republic, and the way that this happens is that Petra takes off with Grandpa with dementia and flies to the Dominican Republic to find this family. The perfect vacation. The perfect vacation. <laughs> and Aaron gets a phone call saying, hi, I'm in the Dominican Republic, Dad, which is, of course, every parent's worst nightmare. Um, but Petra is interesting because she's the culmination of this, this threat of trauma, right? And, and she brings everyone back together. And can you talk about how Petra does that? Yeah, uh, and thanks for bringing that up because I certainly 
uh, well, focused here because of the history. This was not, I didn't want this to be a story of, 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 of that period of time, stuck in that period of time. I wanted to contemporize the story and see how it was playing out today. And so I really created a, I wanted to create this sort of family drama of, of Carl, father, son, Aaron, and daughter. There's three generations and how the past is, because I really wanted to see how that past isn't just stuck over there, but sort of very much playing out. Um, and the son is stuck because he's the son of the father, but, the, but Petra's the teenager um, who is in some way liberated by her own petulance and irritation as a teenager, uh, and in a more modern sense to be able to really give lip to her father in a way that Aaron could never do uh, to his own father. And so um, the story really is just a, a, an unfolding of this secret. Because in all this running through is nobody, again, it's like the way the colonists understood the history that was happened in the Dominican. It's, it's a, in, the, in the Kaufman family, it's a little microcosm, in that you basically know that Carl had a family, but it's the secret that never gets mentioned. And if you never mention it, it still remains a secret. Uh, and it's Petra who's not bound by these tensions. And for her, it's just who's grandpa, what's going on, and, and a kind of shock that her own father is not managing this well. Shock on the one hand, but as a teenager, complete understanding because of course that's he adults. would not handle it well. Yes. And so she's the, as you said, she's the catalyst that brings them, or brings this long story to, you know, bends it back, and so that they all meet back in the Dominican, and everything gets to some degree integrated. Um, as in some ways, the Dominican Republic is attempting to, you know, uh, to integrate all these, all these differences and shades, literally and metaphorically, uh, <laughs> together to sort of have, figure out how all these different families can work without keeping secrets uh, without murdering each other uh, and without just sort of pretending things aren't happening when in fact they are. When they, in fact, in fact and have. And have. Carl is a survivor. Would you agree with that? Yes, yeah. 100%. So, so a, a great survivor. How does Carl as a character, and I know that other folks haven't read the book, but I still think this is a, 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 a significant slice of the book, so I, I think we should still delve into it a little bit. Carl's a survivor. He abandons his first family in Austria and travels and ends up in the Dominican Republic by himself as a teenager. He leaves his entire family behind because they're not figuring out that they're not going to meet with a good end if they remain in Austria. He leaves again from the Dominican Republic. That secret carries forward and then he abandons his second family because that secret starts to come out. How how does Carl heal, or does he ever heal? He slips into dementia, and so he never has to remember. Carl's not going to heal in any real, Aaron needs to heal. Uh, Carl slips back. It's, uh, Carl returns to the Dominican. At that point, he's not too clear if he ever left, if he came back. Uh, he's, he's found his family. There is, I should say, a sense of of calm and relief. He's back with his original son. 
He has the other son with him, and his family is around him. But what he really knows or understands, and in any case, Carl is, can't quite put the pieces together anymore. And part of that idea of a man who, who does not want to remember, dementia or Alzheimer's is like the, is a gift. It's, you know, it's all going away. So uh, for some way he, he, he escapes the, the final reckoning of understanding. Um, but he finds peace. Uh, for Aaron, there's, there is peace and there really is an understanding of between him and his daughter, between him and his now his half-brother, um, and a sense of open, a whole open uh, vista of another whole family that he has in the Dominican that is bringing this whole family together. So his, his, uh, his horizon widens. Carl, Carl just survives. That's what he does. That's what he needs to do. One last question, and then I think we'll have you read sure. some more. But if there were a book after the book, if there were a sequel, what would Aaron's life look like? Oh. I'm blank on that. That's really a great question. I have no idea, and I'm not going to pretend I do. The book ends, and for me it really was the closing. I don't know. I'm not the slightest idea. You read the book. Maybe you have an idea. <laughs> I, I know. It's a great question. I, I mean, I, I, just, I, I just sense it's all. I have no idea. Uh, when I put that book, when it's done, it's done. And those characters who have been uh, living in my head for far, far too long, it was also my way to say goodbye and close the door and get my own sense of, of literary dementia. So I don't know. So, so one of my weaknesses is I'm a ridiculous Beyonce fan. I'm like the, the, yeah. the, the Mickey Mouse Club leader of the Beehive. And in, in Beyonce's album, she, the last album that she did, she had, a, she had a phrase where she said, now that reconciliation is possible, let it be glorious. And that's what I thought as the, as the, as the last chapter closed, I thought, there's now an opportunity for reconciliation, if not for Carl. Although I, I had the sense that as much as Carl was slipped into his place of dementia, he was also, he was home and what he was choosing to recall were the things that made him feel at home. And it turned out the most place where he felt most at home was in the Dominican yes, Republic. that's absolutely true. So I thought that he was sort of cocooned and surrounded, as you said, by these people, but the other sense that I got was that there was a tremendous sense of relief for Aaron and surprise for Aaron. You know, Aaron was going through life with this, I have nothing, I am, I am nothing. My father, why would he want that for me? And not understanding the genesis of that wish from his father, that gift from his father, which wasn't so much of a gift. But he's, he's relieved when he finds out that, in fact, he's the illegitimate child. Um, yes. He's surprised when Petrick repeatedly says, you look just like dad, Abraham. Dad, you look like your brother. And for Aaron, that was a revelation for him in, in some ways. It felt to me. I don't yes. know if that's how you intended it, but that's certainly how it felt to me. And the sense that I got was that in the, in the aftermath of this, Aaron and Petra would find a way to heal, and it was Petra's work that did it. It was. Um, and that he was finally living with some measure of honesty and having his blanks filled in, and that that was 
that the, the sequel to that might be funny and might be cathartic, but that it would, there was some sense that perhaps there would be wholeness again. That was the sense I got. Very pleased that that was the sense you got. <laughs> I am. Um, and that really was, in many ways, the, the intention. There is certainly a sense of wholeness, of understanding of what, really beginning to find, get a, a measure of the man who was his father, uh, and then really be able to work from there, and then be able himself to be himself a better father, because running through these are these secrets that just sort of, that are just running through, that Petra just has no, because when you're young, you, you know, hypocrisy becomes one of those big ideas. You think that adults are hypocritical, and you, of course, are clean in your, in your honesty. So this is just before you get old enough to start lying yourself, I mean, really lying. Um, so he, she does this great gift for both men and for the entire family. Um, and so that sense of hope and wholeness is hopefully the kind of feel that you get at the end of uh, the novel. So I'm very pleased. What happens to Aaron, I have no idea um, what will happen to him. Hmm. Well, since we're talking about the, the family, maybe I'll just do, uh, this is really opening of, the conceit of the novel, just to get it going, is this is father-son. They've lived separate lives for all the reasons we've discussed, but now because of the, Carl can no longer live on his own, and Aaron needs to step in. And this is something that neither father nor son want at all. And this is the moment where they've gone to the father's apartment to pack some stuff up because they have to go uh, to Aaron's. Where are we going? We just came here to get some more of your things, said his son. Then we're going to go back to my place. His son unzipped and opened the suitcase, bearing a hungry emptiness that Carl feared would swallow him whole. He thought back to all the suitcases he'd seen lined up on the street, darkening in the soft drizzle that enveloped Vienna, while their owners in panic subservience darkened alongside them. Carl was determined that he would not be one of those who lined up to disappear. Suitcases marked the ending of things. I'm sleeping here, Carl said. You can't. I want to sleep here. I know you do, Dad, and believe me when I say that I wish you could, because I'll be sleeping on the couch tonight. Do you have any idea how long my day has been? Carl noticed that his granddaughter's reaction was to cross her arms, as if to protect herself from feeling any sympathy. Dad moved into the apartment after he got divorced, Petra said. That was two years ago, said Aaron. Carl had only the vaguest sense of Aaron's ex-wife. She had a face that worried about things, and he remembered how she once told him that his son kept his distance and said it in a way that implied he might be the cause. He hadn't been to his son's new apartment, though after two years, perhaps new wasn't the right way to describe it. I need to get some more things, Carl said because at a certain point, begging to stay meant a further loss of precious dignity. Right now, the only thing he wished he could lose was his family. His granddaughter followed him down the hallway to the kitchen and opened the fridge door without asking his permission. You know you were the first person who ever made me, made me eat a pickle? I'm not sure I could have ever made you do anything, he said. I still think they're gross. She peered at the brightly lit but empty shelves, opening the door wider so he might take a look 
There's no food in here. You're letting all the cold out, but there's nothing in here to keep cold. More reason to close the fridge door. You told me they would grow hair on my chest, his granddaughter said, returning to the pickles. Trudy had hated pickles as well. I should just say Trudy is his sister, uh, Carl's sister, that he abandons and leaves to escape out of Vienna. Trudy had hated pickles as well. He chopped them up into small chunks and put them into his sister's ice cream, and sometimes she'd pretend to be angry, and sometimes she really would be angry and break into tears. He'd been punished more than once, his mother sending him away without dessert. Regardless of his behavior, Trudy always sneaked something sweet into his room. I only came here once, and there was some other place you lived. I visited you there, too. That was before Mom and Dad split. Do you remember? Yes, he did. She was about 10 years old at the time, the same age his sister had been before he lost her. Carl was irritated by her transigence. He'd asked her to do something in his own apartment, and it was only right that she respect his wishes. My cigars are in there, he said, pointing not to the fridge, but to the lower cabinet to the left of it. Without further instruction, she closed the fridge and stooped down to open the cabinet door. They're in the far back, he said, because just like that, they'd come to an understanding. His granddaughter thrust her arm and shoulder into the back of the cupboard, rattling the pots and pans stacked like Russian dolls. Carl had stashed them far away from Sophia's scornful eyes. He'd reluctantly promised to do away with the habit. The cigars he'd hidden meant he hadn't been faithful. Petra pulled out the bundle and brought it to the tip of her nose. They smell really cigar-y, she said. They shouldn't, said Carl, but I guess they've been back there for too long. Tobacco should be properly stored to keep it fresh. That's why I never like smoking cigarettes. They sit neglected on store shelves for months, even years. Which is why you hide cigars in the kitchen cabinet? Carl held out his hand. Here, give them to me. What are you going to do with them, she asked, without releasing them. Dad doesn't smoke. She raised an inquisitive eyebrow in the direction of the open cabinet door. You'll have to hide them from him, too. I'll just hold them. Dad won't suspect anything. I'll keep them out of sight until I can slip them to you, okay? Okay, yes. She took another sniff of Carl's cigar as if to compare, but this time she appeared to take pleasure in the fragrance. I know dad, and he's super freaked out right now. I'm just staying for the night, Carl insisted, but even then he could see it was a lie. The allotment of cigars in his granddaughter's hand could not possibly be consumed in a single evening. Petra looked disappointed, by his self-deception. They went back to his bedroom where his son was busy packing up Carl's clothes into two suitcases that sat open-mouthed on top of the mattress. The drawers were open, the closets empty. Petra, cigars hidden behind her back, stood by the doorway and eyed her father, as if she'd seen this all before. Aaron zipped the suitcase closed. Ready, he asked Carl. Ready, Carl answered, but he wasn't. He'd never been ready to leave, but somehow he'd always been forced to. Thank you, David. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk Talks with David Layton and Laurel Harris. The episode was recorded live at the Prairie Theatre Exchange in Winnipeg on May 7, 2017, where David gave a reading from his novel, The Dictator. The conversation was produced by Michael Booth and Helen Walsh, 
and this episode of the podcast was produced by me, Anthony Burton. Make sure to stay up to date with Talk Talks to keep up with the conversation. You can follow us at TalkWriting on Twitter, that's T-O-K Writing, and visit TalkMagazine.ca for more. Thanks for listening.